Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Investigates podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Welcome all to my True Blue Crime Productions podcast, True Blue Crime Investigates. Thank you for all your support on the True Blue Crime podcast and for following me over to this one. I'll be doing cases for both of them once I have a few episodes of this podcast produced and available. And if you'd like to get updates about what this podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. And True Blue Crime Productions is the umbrella production corporation that all these podcasts are going to be under. So the Facebook page, the website, the email, they'll work for both True Blue Crime and True Blue Crime Investigates. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime Investigates. These episodes are going to operate a little differently than those on True Blue Crime. They'll be more focused on analysis and free speak, so I decided not to do these lengthy introductions with the historical references to the crime story. Instead, I'll spend that time doing a brief introduction about the overall coverage of the story and then get into the actual story itself. Also, I'll do my best to avoid offering theories about a specific suspect unless there's solid and verifiable evidence to support it. For my first case, I chose a well-known, unsolved, true crime case that has kept internet sleuths busy since the birth of social media. When Maura Murray went missing in 2004, her case didn't get the same attention as those, say, of Natalie Holloway or JonBenet Ramsey, but over the years, the story has been the focus of many podcasts and blogs and has gained a cult following. I know this podcast won't solve the case. Many people have dedicated months and even years of their life to trying to solve it. But I feel every crime victim and missing person deserves to have their story told, and I can only hope that one day their loved ones get the answers that they so desperately seek. This is the unsolved case of the disappearance of Maura Murray. 21-year-old college student Maura Murray went missing in 2004 after having issues with her car in New Hampshire. This case is so filled with inconsistencies that even the reason for her car being on the side of the road is contested. But in order to cover this case, we need to start years before 2004 and learn a few things about Mora. She was born in 1982 and was the youngest child of the family. When she was six, her parents divorced and she lived primarily with her mom, but maintained a good relationship with her father. She was a star track athlete in high school and was accepted into the United States Military Academy, better known as West Point. One of her older sisters was serving in the military and Mora wanted to follow in her footsteps. During her freshman year at West Point, she studied chemical engineering and met a man named Billy Roust, who had become her boyfriend up until the time she disappeared. Mora, like all young adults, was not perfect. She battled eating disorders and left West Point after being caught shoplifting cosmetics. She changed course and decided to pursue nursing at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And it's very important, there are so many inconsistencies with this case in regards to Mora about her background and I don't bring up any particular part of her background in order to try to bring any shame or bring down Mora at all. I just think some of it's very relevant to some of the changes in course that she experienced throughout her college career and we're going to talk about a few more. And again, no young adult is perfect. Uh, this is a time period in your life where you're experiencing a lot of different stressors, you're experiencing financial hardships most of the time. Eating disorders are very common in both men and women this age. So again, I'm not victim blaming at all here, I'm not victim shaming at all, I'm, I'm just trying to do my best to speak to the facts that I found in the research so that we have a better picture of who Mora was at the time that she went missing. And again, I have zero problems with some of the stuff that we're going to talk about here. Again, it's it's just that time in somebody's life as they're transitioning from, say, a teenager to an adult with responsibilities. Mistakes are made. Uh, 
people do make these mistakes all the time. They learn from them. They move on. It's just there's going to be a lot going on in her life at the time that she goes missing that I think is important to at least talk about. And then when we get into some of the theories, those will make a little bit more sense after we've talked about everything going on in her life. And by all accounts, her sophomore year at UMass was uneventful. The only thing worth noting is a reported relationship that developed between her and a track coach named Hussein Baghdadi. The coach was a grad student and he was only a couple years older than Mora and it is said the relationship began while Mora and her boyfriend Bill were on a break, but may have continued at times when Mora and Bill were back together. A college romance, even a secret one with possible allegations of cheating happens. It's college and there are a lot of younger, like-minded people and Mora and Bill struggled with their long distance relationship at times. So while on paper this relationship looks bad, the coach admitted to it after the fact and even mentioned that Mora felt like running away from it all. And again, not blaming here at all. There was a lot of issues here. Mora had this this dream of being in the military, of going to West Point, of following her sister's footsteps into the military. That all got crushed with this shoplifting incident, and I, I don't have the particulars of that incident, but it caused her to have to take a major right turn in her life. And I'm sure that when her and Bill were together at West Point that freshman year, they talked a lot about a future together in the military, what that would look like. And so, you know, this sophomore year, this is a big change in her life. They're now, instead of going to the same school, they're some distance apart. Instead of having like future dreams, they have different future dreams at this point. So this, this kind of thing does happen. People go on breaks. People, you know, meet up with other people they're spending a lot of time with. Sports teams in college, you're traveling with these people. You're practicing with these people. You're attending meetings with these people. It's... Again, it's a lot of younger, like-minded people, and this track coach was just was just a, a grad student who was just a couple years older than Moore. It wasn't like he was, you know, a 45-year-old married track coach with three kids or anything. I think she was 21 at the time. He was, or she was 20 at the time. He was 22, 23, somewhere in there. So again, while this looks bad on paper, and a lot of people jumped all over this as a potential reason why she disappeared. In reality, again, I think you'd find a lot of college relationships, those freshman year of college relationships, they don't last all the way through college. A lot of this kind of stuff happens to everybody. Uh, but again, I'm not going to skip over this stuff and not mention it because I think it all does play a part. And Mora's criminal problems came back when she got caught using someone's credit card info to order food from restaurants. She had written down the person's card number when it was presented to her at work and then used the number to pay for the food over the phone. She was eventually caught and charged with financial transaction card fraud under $250. She was put on probation and told to stay law-abiding and she could move on from it. Again, is it the best look for Mora at this point, uh, especially pursuing a profession such as nursing? No. Does it happen? Do do people, again, do they make mistakes? Do they get desperate? Absolutely they do. I think one of my favorite quotes from a supervisor I had in the past was, sometimes good people make bad decisions. And, and that can definitely be the case. You know, we're talking about the course of her entire college career. And I look back at a lot of people who in college got a DWI or got in trouble for something, got put on academic probation, whatever it might be. College is that time you make mistakes. You're out on your own for the first time. You don't have a parent guiding you. You're going to do some stupid stuff, and, and Maura did some stupid stuff, and, and she, there was consequences for it. And again, I'm, I'm not saying this stuff to make Maura sound like a bad person. Sometimes good people make bad decisions. Uh, it just, again, there's a lot going on in her life. There's kind of this cascade of criminal issues, relationship issues, and it's all going to kind of lead up to the days before her disappearance. On February 6, 2004, at 1 a.m., Mora's supervisor found her at work in the middle of a total mental breakdown. When asked what was wrong, Mora said there were family issues, particularly regarding her sister. Some reports state her sister was, had been an alcoholic and had just gotten out of rehab that day and had already relapsed. This was not the military sister, this was her other sister. And there was a hit and run accident that occurred that evening, and some people speculate she may have been the suspect. 
and at first glance it looks possible, even probable, because Maura had taken a break from work that evening, and around the time of the accident she could have been driving, and she was also known to have been on a phone call with Bill before, during, or after the accident. And the timing's a little tough because the victim was found on the side of the road with critical injuries and no memory of the vehicle that hit him. And Moore's dad, Fred, withdrew $4,000 from eight different ATMs and drove down the next day to help Mora buy a new car. So again, we talk about in these cases the optics of things. And the optics of things is just how they look through somebody's eyes. And when you look at this, the night that this kid is critically injured, he's on the side of the road. It's, it's within a time frame where she was known to have taken a break she has this total mental breakdown. Now it's later reported, I don't think right away it was reported that this had something to do with her sister's potential relapse with alcohol, but people said she was basically almost catatonic behind this desk. And this is why some people believe something really bad happened. She knew she hit this kid, but again, there's, there's nothing to indicate it, but then the optics of all of a sudden her dad driving down the next day, making cash withdrawals from ATMs to buy a new car. Is there anything illegal about it? No. But do the optics of it look great? Not really. Uh, you can purchase a car. If you're withdrawing $4,000 from your bank account, you can purchase a car using a personal check for that amount. You don't have to carry that much cash with you. Cash is usually a way to try to hide an electronic trail of that. I mean, I say that, but at the same time, when you buy a vehicle, there's always going to be an electronic trail. It's always going to be, there's titles, there's registrations, there's all that kind of stuff. So it's not like they can hide the fact they're buying a car. So it might just, again, be that the optics look really bad, the timing looks really bad, and it was said that this particular stretch on the university had an unfortunately high amount of accidents, pedestrians that were hit. So again, it could just be completely circumstantial, but that's when you get into actually researching things like this. You'll find message boards filled with people saying, well, there's paint chips on the, the kid that was hit and they didn't match Moore's car. And then there an, there's other points that say, well, this is a, it looked like the kid passed out in the road and a four by four vehicle, like a truck drove over him and, or drug him for some distance. And then you see other message boards that say, well, no, he clearly had injuries to one side of his body indicating he was struck by a vehicle while walking. And this entire case from beginning to end, the, the actual investigation of her disappearance is still being kept very close to the vest by, by police. They claim it's still an open investigation, even though it's almost 20 years old. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of it this winter. Her father has tried to do Freedom of Information Act requests, and a lot has been turned down because it's a quote-unquote open investigation. So again, I don't know where people are getting a lot of their information, if it's third-hand through the rumor mill at the school at the time, if police at UMass Amherst talked at some point to somebody and then that information got out. So again, researching this case, especially my first one, was difficult because it's not a lack of information, it's an overabundance of information and conflicting information when, when you look into this case. Everybody has a theory and that theory has supporters and people who will blow that theory up and whether or not they're using actual evidence, made up evidence, it's so difficult to tell. So again, there is a possibility, a, a rather slim one, but there is a possibility that, that her mental breakdown and this need to buy a new car coincides with this kid being critically injured. However, according to Fred, the reason for buying Mora a new car was that her car, which was like an eight-year-old Saturn, had started to smoke badly. And Bill's mother said she had resorted to catching rides with friends because of the car issues. And this was also just a week or so after winter break or her father likely would have been aware of the status of her car. And I mean, we all had that car, whether it was coming out of high school or going into college, that was just piece of crap car that you just hoped every time you put the key in there and turned the ignition that the car would start. You know, nobody was driving around in a brand new car when they're in college, at least nobody without a lot of money or parents that had a lot of money. So it's it's... It's just weird because, again, this is one where if you read certain articles, they'll say 
none of her friends indicated that she was she was having car troubles and she went out to dinner with her good friend that night and her father and they didn't mention car shopping at all which is you know usually a big deal when you're going to get replace a car you're going to mention something about hey you know my dad's down here because we're going to go car shopping tomorrow it, again it just the whole optics of it looks really off but at the same time it could just be that literally the car was in need of replacement and her dad decided to come down and, and they were going to try to buy a new car and just to be clear there has never been as far as i know any definitive link between Moore murray and this accident so again it's just it's the timing of it it's the optics of it that make it look like her total mental breakdown her need to purchase a new vehicle all of a sudden could be related to this accident and after dinner mora dropped fred off at his hotel and she used his car to drive to a college party. While coming home from the party, she lost control of the car and crashed it, totaling the car. Police arrived, but she was not field tested or arrested for DWI, and the car was towed to the hotel and Morris spent the night there. And one important thing is any DWI arrest, just because somebody's not field tested or arrested for DWI does not mean that person wasn't drunk. It's said that Mora's drink of choice was vodka, and vodka is a very difficult drink to smell on somebody. If somebody's drunk on vodka, it doesn't give off the same scent of an intoxicating beverage coming from the person's breath. A lot of alcoholics drink vodka, and they will go to work, and they will function extremely well even though they may have a very high blood alcohol level. When I was a police officer, some of the more heavy drinkers that I knew that drank just pure vodka or you know mixed vodka with Coke and drank it all day long, they could be well above a 0.20 blood alcohol level and have almost no indications that they're intoxicated. And I'm not saying Mora was there. I'm not saying she's an alcoholic. We're going to find out that she's obviously in college. She likes to drink. She was at this party. It's just a lot of people point to this and say, well, clearly she wasn't drunk because she didn't get field tested or arrested for DWI. That's not necessarily the case. It might be that she just didn't appear intoxicated. And it might be, guess what? DWIs are an absolute pain in the butt for police officers, and they've only gotten more difficult over the years. This may have been a police officer that, for whatever reason that night, decided he didn't want to arrest her for DWI. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the case, but I'm saying it does happen where police officers actively try to avoid DWIs. So a lot of people, again, they'll put stock into the fact that she wasn't arrested for the DWI, saying she's not drunk. That's not necessarily the case, but all we can say is that she wasn't arrested or field tested. And the following day, Fred reported the accident and used a rental car to drive home. He called Mora that night, this is Sunday night now, and they agreed to talk the following morning. After talking to her dad, Mora went online, and now after midnight on Sunday night into Monday, she searched for MapQuest directions to a couple of getaways in Vermont. And this is, again, 2004, so we don't have navigation in vehicles. Even if she did, her vehicle is a, I think it's a 1996 Saturn. It's not going to have navigation, and cell phones do not have navigation. So this was the era of looking up directions, printing them out on a printer, and then using the turn-by-turn -turn directions from MapQuest to get to your location if you, if you didn't use an atlas or a map. So, again, different time period, but police are going to see record on her computer of this they're going to find some directions in her car to where she's going at 1 p.m on monday so she likely went to bed obviously some point after she did this map quest search and then woke up probably late morning on monday morning at 1 p.m she emailed bill her boyfriend who had apparently been trying to get a hold of her her reply was and i think this is going to be a direct quote i love you more stud i got your messages but honestly i don't feel like talking too much of anyone I promise to call you today though, love you, Mora. She then made a phone call about renting a condo in New Hampshire, but learned she could not do it at the last minute, and then phoned a nursing student about returning some scrubs. She reportedly called Bill around 2.18 and left a voicemail telling him that she loved him and missed him and wanted to talk. She then emailed her boss and some teachers telling them she was going to be out of town for a death in the family, but the family would later confirm no death actually occurred. And this communication with Bill. I think there's something wrong with his phone. 
around this time like it wouldn't ring through so there's a lot of voicemails uh, he's saying he's not actually seeing the phone calls come in he's just getting the voicemails so unfortunately i think this is a missed opportunity for bill to get some real information that would have potentially helped this investigation her message to him earlier they're definitely having relationship issues at this point now she's going to leave a note for him when she leaves her dorm that is all the issues that are wrong with their relationship and again this is long distance this is her she's going through some stuff at this point and again i don't know how good of a relationship they had clearly they lasted for at least a few years so there is some love there but again it's college there's distance he's at fort sill now oklahoma for his military training so he's even further away from her which makes things even more difficult but she definitely seems wishy-washy one second she's not wanting to talk to him not wanting to talk to anybody and then she's calling him and telling him that she loves him and misses him and wants to talk so she seems to be going through a very specific crisis at this point emotionally mentally everything and she's going to take this break this use a a fake bereavement to, to try to get away for a little bit Evidence later suggested that she packed up most of her dorm room before leaving, including taking the artwork off the walls. Indications that she may have planned on leaving the school for good sometime soon. And she was doing really well in school. She had made the dean's list, so this wasn't something where she had flunked out her fall semester and didn't tell anybody and came back. It definitely seemed like she was going to leave. Now there are, again people who will say well the the school required them to pack everything up before winter break so this she just never unpacked her stuff because she'd only been back for like 10 days but then there's other sources out there that say oh no they they don't require that at all so if she packed stuff up she would have had to have packed it up during that her last 10 days there and she planned on leaving so again every single time you look into an aspect of this case you will find two different sides to it without true evidence as to what's actually going on here. But now we're going to get into some stuff that is indisputable. She left her dorm room around 3.30 and at 3.40 she drained her bank account by taking $280 out of an ATM and then spending 40 of it on liquor at a nearby store. Both the ATM camera and security camera at the liquor store show that she was alone during this time. And this $40 on liquor, it was a box of wine and a couple bottles of like Kahlua and vodka to make mudslides, which was one of her favorite drinks. And even though she took $280 out of the ATM, which did drain her bank account, it was said that she was supposed to be getting paychecks from her two part-time jobs within that week. So, and this is something she obviously would have known. So taking $280 out doesn't necessarily mean that was the last money she ever planned on having because she has this other money coming in later and she checked her voicemail at 4 37 p.m which is the last activity on her cell phone she picked up accident forms for the accident involving her father's vehicle and headed north towards the hills and mountains of northern new hampshire just after 7 p.m a woman in rural woodsville new hampshire named faith westman stated she heard what she thought was a car accident outside her house on a snowy road She lived on a sharp curve in the road known to cause accidents when the roadway is icy or snow-covered. She looked outside and saw Mora's car in a snowbank, and it looked like it had been involved in an accident. At 7.27 p.m., Faith called 911 to report the accident, stating there was a car in the ditch and possibly a man inside smoking a cigarette. And this was later believed to be Mora, and the glow was from her cell phone. Another neighbor also saw the crashed vehicle and noticed someone out walking around the car. They then watched as one of their neighbors, a man named Butch Atwood, pulled up to the accident scene in the bus he drove as his profession. Butch later told authorities he saw a young woman inside the car, around 20 years old, and he offered to call 911 for her, but she pleaded with him not to call the cops, and she claimed to have called AAA from her cell phone. However, this area had no cell phone coverage in 2004, and as of 2015, one writer said it still didn't have cell coverage. Butch, concerned about Mora, offered to give her a ride to his house to stay warm and wait for AAA, but she declined, saying she would wait in her car. Faith would see this exchange between Butch and Mora and said after Butch left, there was a lot of activity inside and outside of the car. Butch drove the short distance to his house and parked his bus before going in to call 911. He said the lines were busy, 
but eventually he got through to a dispatcher around 7.43, which is 16 minutes after Faith first told the dispatcher about the crash. Butch watched the road from his house, but he couldn't see Mora or her car, but did note several unidentified vehicles passed while he was trying to hold the dispatch. And this is important because one of the theories, and we'll talk about all the theories, but is that she could have got picked up by somebody. And if Butch had said in the time that he parked his bus, which I think he backed into the driveway, and went to his house, went out to the porch, made this phone call, if he never saw another vehicle pass either direction on the road, that kind of eliminates the, or at least it severely lessens the possibility that this was a, a stranger who picked up Mora and, and disappeared with her. But he's saying he's noting several unidentified vehicles passing, so any of those vehicles could have picked up Mora or had Mora in there already when they when he passed, depending on which direction they drove by his house. And according to police reports and dispatch records, Sergeant Cecil Smith with the Haverhill Police Department arrived on scene at 746. It's important to note his vehicle did not have GPS and his actual arrival time could have been earlier and he checked out minutes after arriving. And so this is, again, 2004, squad cars do not have GPS monitoring and even if they did, uh, most of those rely on a halfway decent signal, which it sounds like there wasn't great signal coverage in 2004 in this area. So when we go off of a timeline based on the officer's arrival, if you go with that is 100% the time that he arrived, you have to believe that he aired his arrival, dispatch, put it into the log at that time period as he was arriving. There's many times when I was a police officer that I would get to a scene. Now granted, in our squads, we could just push a button that basically said we were there. Um, we were supposed to air it, but sometimes there's other radio traffic going on. Sometimes you're, you're getting what's called bonked, meaning you don't have a signal or somebody else is already speaking while you're trying to tell dispatch. And you see this car and you're like, well, I'm just gonna go check on this person. And then by the time I get back, I'll let dispatch know I'm out here. So it, it is possible that it's within the realm of possibility, I should say, that Sergeant Smith arrived before 746. But at, at the bare minimum, we know he's there at 746. In his timeline, Butch said it was around seven to nine minutes between when he stopped to check on Mora and when he saw Sergeant Smith arrive. Mora was not in or near the car and the car was locked, obvious damage to the front of the car and the windshield due to airbag deployment. And this just goes to say a lot of people question whether Mora had a head injury because the windshield was cracked and one went as far as to say, well, she was five foot seven, she was wearing a seatbelt, so they don't believe her head hit. People don't realize that airbags don't care about windshields. It's not part of the design of a car to save the windshield if an airbag goes off. So airbag deployments often do cause damage to the windshield. And we know that her airbag went off and we know that this, this crack on the windshield is consistent with airbag deployment. So again, just there's multiple rabbit holes people go down when sometimes the easiest answer is right there that this is an airbag deployment. Now, could she have hit her head on the side of the car or on what's called the B pillar behind the driver's seat? Absolutely. She could have still sustained a head injury some other way, but she did not go through the windshield. As far as I can tell from the picture, she didn't strike the windshield with her head. Uh, and likely this wasn't that high speed of an accident. These roads were filled with potholes and Again, there's like two and a half feet of snow and the snow banks on the side of the road. This is not a road you'd be driving through at high speed. And her car, again, is not in the best condition in the first place. Uh, so it doesn't take much to slip on a curve on some ice on these roads and, and strike, in this case, I think it was some trees, and then spin around like it did. So what I'm saying is it wasn't a 70 or 80 miles an hour into a, into a tree. It was probably a pretty low speed collision uh, that just happened to, to crumple a car. And that's the other thing about vehicles is they're made to bend and absorb the impact of a head-on collision. That's part of how we stay alive in crashes is the vehicle's frame, bodywork, all that stuff is designed to absorb the impact. So you can have a really low speed impact and the car can look totaled and it doesn't mean that 
the car was traveling at a high rate of speed. So just looking at damage alone is not a great way to indicate speed or the amount of force because every car kind of crumples at different based on how they're designed. But uh, clearly Mora's communicating with Butch. She's out walking around the vehicle. She's not injured to the point that she's incapacitated in any way as far as anybody can tell. And when Sergeant Smith did a quick search of the car, he found a box of wine had been damaged and spilled during the crash, and a plastic Coke bottle with red liquid that smelled like alcohol was found next to the driver's seat. While it was assumed that Mora was drinking and driving, Butch said during a short conversation with Mora she did not appear intoxicated. But then again, we go back to when she crashed her father's car, and she had left a party where people said that she was drinking, and she doesn't get field tested or doesn't get arrested for DWI. It's possible that if she was used to drinking a large amount of alcohol that she could have passed for sober despite having a higher blood alcohol level. Again, that's speculation and I don't like speculating, but when you see people saying, well, she didn't appear intoxicated, therefore maybe she wasn't drinking and driving, there's also the possibility that she was drinking and driving, she just didn't appear intoxicated because she had a higher alcohol tolerance. So it could be either or. And Sergeant Smith drove to Faith's house and Butch's house to see if the driver had sought shelter, but both witnesses stated they hadn't seen Mora leave the vehicle or the area. At 7.56, EMS arrived on scene as they had been requested by Sergeant Smith due to the condition of the vehicle and the missing driver. Both Butch and Sergeant Smith started driving through the area but did not locate Mora. Two eyewitnesses would later report accounts that were possibly related. One witness said he saw a younger woman walking on the side of the road away from the scene of the crash around the time Sergeant Smith would have arrived. This report was delayed a few months as the eyewitness at first wasn't aware of the incident. I think he was a construction worker that had been working on, I don't know if it was a building in the area or whatever it was, but he wasn't from the area so he wasn't very familiar with this case. And so it wasn't until it kind of gained some traction and, and hit a larger reach in the media that he realized he was in the area of the accident that day and had seen this younger woman walking on the side of the road. So he called a couple months later saying, hey, I think I saw what, who could have been Mora walking away from that scene. But again, there's no confirmation of that and it was it was a few months later. Another witness said she was walking to a store about one mile from the accident scene a little after 7 p.m. when she saw a red pickup truck drive past her and then slow down. She described the vehicle as a truck that someone who cut down wood would use, and the truck parked at the store she was going to shop at and then left and headed in the direction of the crash. And this truck has never been identified. And a lot of people refer to this as the red truck throughout the different message boards. And the thing I find about this interesting is that this woman admits to walking on the side of the road. Now, maybe she wasn't, didn't look anything like Maura Murray, wasn't wearing anything like Maura Murray, and so they've ruled out that the guy, the construction worker that saw the woman walking, couldn't have seen this woman. He would have had to see somebody who more matched Maura's description, but we have a woman admitting to walking to the store in the area roughly where he would have seen a woman walking on the road, so did he see her or did he see Maura? There's no real way, I think, at this point, from what I found in the research, to indicate one way or the other. And it's at this point that Mora is officially missing and her whereabouts are not known to this day. Search dogs, volunteer searchers, cadaver dogs, and various other search methods have been used over the years and no one has located Mora. A canine track that night led officers around 100 yards down the road, but then the scent vanished as if she had been picked up by a vehicle. So we've so first we're going to further break down this case by looking at the victimology. And if you guys follow my True Blue Crime podcast, you'll know I, I like to get into victimology because I think a lot of answers to a crime can be found in victimology. Uh, just breaking down what was going on with the victim at the time of the crime, which can lead to different theories and suspects. So Mora was a... Tw- and again... I will say this, as I say on, on my other podcast, victimology is not victim blaming. It's not victim shaming. It's applying facts from what's going on in that person's life to look at potential crimes they may be victims of, to figure out what might have happened to them. Again, this is, this is, no, this is not a judgment against that person. It is simply just looking at what's going on in her life to see if there can be some indication of what might have happened. 
And so Mora was a 21-year-old female with some past and recent issues in her life. Her road trip was last minute and was seen by most as an escape from something in her life. And this is really important because Mora's case, I think, is most interesting because all the stuff that was going on at UMass in her college life, in her personal relationship, everything that was going on there may or may not have anything to do with her going missing. If everything in her life at college had been a little more stable those days up, and again, not blaming her, I'm just saying there was a lot going on in her life leading up to her taking off like this. If she had just decided she was going on this road trip and then disappeared on this road trip, I think there'd be less questions about what happened. But because of all the the somewhat, I guess, chaos that was going on in her life back at college that led her to flee, that's where a lot of people get really confused as to all the different possibilities of what could have happened to her. It was widely reported that Bill and her were having relationship issues and considering Bill was in the army and was likely going to ship out to Iraq or Afghanistan, because again, this is 2004, this is post-invasion of both Iraq and Afghanistan. Most military members are going to be doing a tour of one or both at some point in the near future. And her dreams of being in the military have been abandoned. It's possible she wasn't seeing a future in the relationship. It's very difficult at this point. There's a lot of military service members that are going overseas that are relationships are ending as a result of that either something happens while they're overseas you know they're already dealing with long distance they're going to have to add the stress of deployments to that they're with already having relationship issues and they haven't even gotten there plus it's always difficult if she saw this as her future as her dream to be with somebody who's constantly reminding you of that missed opportunity at, at the future you wanted that's also difficult and then we have you know, her leaving that typewritten letter to Bill outlining the problems in their relationship before she left her dorm. And she left it on top of some packed boxes as if she wanted someone to find it and give it to him. But this also allowed her to change her mind about the letter. And I say that because if she, if she really wanted Bill to get this letter, she could have mailed it to him. And she didn't. And that gives that option of maybe if you do come back and you, nobody's found that letter yet, and your feelings about Bill have changed, he never sees the letter, he doesn't even know it exists. Whereas you're kind of in this gray area where, yes, I'll leave the letter, if somebody finds it, they can give it to him, and he can get what I'm going through out of this letter. But if, again, if I change my mind and come back and nobody's given him the letter yet, he never has to see it. So it's kind of this gray area. She went to the time to type it out, but it's also not like it was in a drawer where she had typed it at some point, realized I better hold on to this and hope that he never sees it and hid it from people. So it's, again, just another one of the parts of this story that you can read into it 17 different ways if you want to. And if he had for sure read it, this likely would have ended the relationship or at least would have made things even potentially more rocky but her messages to him definitely had that feeling of that she was conflicted about a future together with him so this this whole the way she left this letter leads me to believe there's a lot of conflicted feelings she's going with does she want a future with bill does she not she's likely obviously she knows what a future with bill somewhat looks like and she's maybe somewhat okay with it but also not okay with it so She's not to the point where she clearly wants to be done, but she's also not at the point where she's clearly madly, deeply in love with this guy and willing to do anything to make the relationship work. And her reported romantic relationship with the track coach likely didn't help matters, and there was information that she'd done a search on her computer about heavy drinking and pregnancy. And again, this is, you can go down a hundred different rabbit holes with this and say, well, what if she was pregnant? Was she running away? because she was pregnant was she running away to get an abortion was she uh, running away to figure out what the next thing to do in her life with who was potentially the father she she just got back from winter break so was it somebody she met back home was it bill who knows and she might not have even been pregnant maybe she just been concerned that she could be pregnant and was worried about the effects of heavy drinking on on a pregnancy there was nothing to indicate a positive pregnancy test, a visit to the doctor, anything like that that would indicate the pregnancy, but then you go back to her mental breakdown, 
uh, if she is pregnant or in the early stages of a pregnancy, there's a lot of hormones going on, a lot of instability. So again, this is why this case has so many different possibilities going on. And she has just gotten back from winter break. So again, was it possible she was pregnant? Could that have been the source of the mental breakdown and the sharp turn in her life? Why she packed up all of her stuff and was thinking about leaving school? And pregnant women, especially in these rocky relationships and at less than ideal times in their life, are at a higher risk for crimes against them and severe mental health issues. It's just going to cause a lot of stress to them. And if they reveal that they're pregnant and it's not Bill, it's to some other guy that we don't know about, there's indications several times where these guys have ended the woman's life to end the pregnancy but again we're gonna get, get into some theories about that and why i don't think that's the case down the road here but i would say overall mora was a moderate risk victim just based on the things going on in her life at the time she went missing and i only say that it's moderate just because there's so much going on in her life that she's making these choices whether it be potentially drinking and driving driving this vehicle that's having obvious issues up into the middle of nowhere in the winter she's creating some risks there that the typical person doesn't create and so i'm not saying it's high risk it's not as far as i know behave she's not committing behaviors that are opening her up to having a crime committed against her uh, there's there's no indication of that but at the same time it's not as if she's sitting in her dorm room everything's going great she's studying and then all of a sudden she's missing she was you know extremely low risk so at this point of the podcast, we'll get into suspects and theories, and we'll cover the most popular theory, and that is that Mora vanished on purpose and is still alive. And this was initially the police theory that she was just drunk and just walked away from the crash and would show up when she was sober. But as time passed, and now almost 20 years has passed, most people don't believe this is likely anymore. There have been no confirmed sightings of Mora, no contact with her family, and no bank activity or any digital footprint to indicate that she is still alive. And that's why this case is very frustrating, one of the many reasons why this case is frustrating. When police first respond to this accident, they're not treating it as if this is going to be a missing person case of this magnitude and that the driver is going to be gone for 20 years and nobody knows where she went. They're responding to a crash. They find the alcoholic beverage in the vehicle. They think this person's been drinking happens all the time the driver crashes runs from the scene hides out gets a hotel room whatever they need to do until they're sober then come back and they report the crash when they're sober the police have no true evidence that that person was drinking at the time they could still get charged with something like an open beverage in the vehicle but if they don't have any alcohol in their system and it's too far removed from the crash there's a good chance that this person's going to escape a dwi so they're likely thinking, yeah, by this is Monday afternoon, by Tuesday morning, she's going to be walking into a police department to report this crash and to get her car back and everything is going to be, this is what happens 99% of the time. So part of it is they're responding to a crash with this in mind and not thinking that she's going to be this, this missing person with so many questions. And the next theory is that she had this new boyfriend and it's called like the tandem driver theory that she was traveling north with somebody, that she was meeting for a getaway. And it's based on rumors that Mora may have been dating someone new, which is one of the reasons she was having the relationship issues with Bill. And she decided to do a romantic escape with this person. However, this theory would require someone she knows to be following her, but not following her close enough that they would have been seen by Faith or Butch. And they'd have to somehow show up after the crash and after Butch stops but before police arrive. And the theory then requires that person to kill Mora later and hide the body. So there's a lot of things that have to happen. And I call it, when I'm researching this case, I call it the missing seven minutes. And that's the time in which somebody last saw Mora and before Sergeant Smith arrives according to his arrival log with dispatch. And it could be a shorter amount of time, which makes stuff that happens there even more important but at the maximum amount of time we're talking seven minutes so we have to believe that if there is a tandem traveler that without cell phone signal they come across her crash after she's been sitting there for 20 30 minutes whatever it is between the time because the crash is reported sometime after seven and butch is out there making a call 
around 7.30, and then the police are showing up at 7.47. The last time anybody saw her, I think, was around 7.40-ish. So, again, you'd have to have somebody showing up 40 minutes after the crash, out of the blue, somehow time it after Butch stops out, but before the police get there. And then, even if somehow this tandem driver managed to, to get more away during that window of time, then you have to assume that this person either assisted her in disappearing for, for 20 years or killed her and hid the body. So it's a lot to, to think that is the most likely theory. And then there's the people that have the, the boyfriend theory. And this is because the missing person's closest lover is always looked at in these cases. However, in this case, Bill was in Oklahoma at the time of the disappearance, and there's no evidence to indicate he somehow drove or flew to New Hampshire and located Mora again in that small window of time to abduct her and kill her. Many people still kind of think that Bill has some involvement because he was later charged with sexual assault on an army subordinate of his in 2011. So he's obviously got some issues, but... There's no evidence that I could find that he would have had the capabilities of getting to northern New Hampshire that day. Uh, and again, her voicemails, her emails say nothing about meeting up with them, how he would have had to have known where she was going and where she would have crashed and, and found her within those seven minutes of missing time. Uh, to me, again, this theory just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And then there's people that think Butch Atch Atwood had something to do with it and the Butch Atwood theory got a lot of attention because he was a big guy he was like 350 pounds and he's going to be the last person to see Mora alive other than the person Faith saw out her window however Butch passes a polygraph test and is really only brought up as a suspect in online chat rooms and it, there just seems to be no indication that he would have been involved he drives his bus past the scene he calls 911 and he's on the phone with 911 during these these missing minutes of time in which she actually does go missing so she would have had to have likely walked to his house he would have had to do something with her and this is while he knows police are on their way and then somehow you know hid the body while the police are talking to him whatever it might be it's just again a very not likely scenario in Stranger Abduction and Homicide, this is the strongest theory when it comes to foul play. And there was a house just down the road that was being rented by a sex offender. And many believe that house and the suspect is associated with this case. The owners of the home did not cooperate with searchers after the sex offender moved out. But when it was sold, the new owners allowed searchers full access to the house and nothing was found. And the red pickup tr truck also fits the Stranger Abduction and Homicide theory. Mora may have been getting desperate as she realized her cell phone wasn't going to bring help and she needed to get out of the area before police arrived and she ended up with a DWI. So she may have been offered a ride by a man in the red truck and if he worked with Wood like the witness believed he did, he would know all types of back roads to take Mora to and commit any number of crimes against her and then bury her body where it's highly unlikely anyone would find out. So again, it doesn't even have to be the red truck. This could just be one of those many cars that Butch reported driving by. She may not want to get into this bus with this 350 pound man, Butch. And at that time, she may have still been holding out hope that she could get a cell phone signal. She could call somebody, whatever the, the hope might've been. But after Butch stops out with her and she's pleading with them not to call 911, she probably starts thinking in her head, police could be on their way and if they show up and I'm still here with this car I'm going to get a DWI which is going to affect that credit card fraud that I had because I was supposed to stay law-abiding I could now be facing charges from the credit card fraud and a DWI and she's got $280 to her name and you have the possibility that she may be pregnant she's trying to get away from everything and now things have just gotten a hundred times worse for her so she may have just reached a point of absolute desperation and the next person who stopped out to offer her a ride, she may have hopped in and that, that would explain the her scent traveling 100 yards and disappearing. And again, these are snow-covered roads, at least the, the sides of the road are snow-covered and police are going to look for footprints in the snow or shoe prints and they're not going to see her heading into the woods or anything like that. So they have a pretty good idea that there's a high likelihood she got into a vehicle 
And unfortunately for her, whoever she got into the vehicle with may have had some bad intentions and they got even worse at some point and they ended up killing her and, and burying her body somewhere where nobody has found it yet. And then we have the wandered off and died theory. And this is probably the most likely non-foul play theory. If Mora really did walk off like the construction worker saw her walking, she did so in jeans and a light jacket, which is hardly warm enough clothing to survive a night in sub-freezing temperatures. She had also been drinking, which, which exasperates hypothermia. There is record of a phone call to Bill's phone from a prepaid card, like one given to Mora by Bill's mother, and it is reported that someone sounding like Mora was complaining about being cold and she sounded out of it. So if Mora had stumbled into a creek or a ravine and somehow hurt herself, it's possible she succumbed to the elements in the remote forest around the crash site. Now, she would have had to likely get to a payphone to use this card, and I guess the police tried to trace this phone call to Bill's phone, which again was having issues, so this, this was all on a voicemail, and this is all from only one source that I found, so I don't know the authenticity of it, but if it's true that the Bill's phone received this voicemail from Mora complaining about being cold and mumbling and, and sounding out of it, it's possible she could have gotten to somewhere that had a cell phone. And again, then you have, you still have the wandered off and died theory, but you also have the, she may have been so desperate that she took a ride from somebody theory at that point too. And then you have suicide. This theory is based on her apparent mental breakdown and running off for no reason. And so it's always a possibility that someone could have killed themselves, but this theory falls short when you look at her actions that day. She had tried to get a room to stay in, and most importantly, she picked up the accident form she needed for the crash with her father's vehicle. So if you're going to kill yourself, why would you bother with picking up some forms that day? And I know things changed. It may have been a decision she would have made after the crash, but it's not something that most people do. You don't drive off to try to go take this mental health vacation, whatever you want to call it, get into a crash and decide at this point, okay, well now I'll kill myself. It's usually a decision to kill yourself is is done at least somewhat in advance with some type of a plan. And if the, if she was going to, then how did she carry it out? As far as anybody knew, she didn't have a weapon, she didn't have the means to do it, and it's not as if her body should be missing. Most suicide victims, their bodies are found because they commit suicide in the area where somebody's going to find them. So again, it just doesn't seem to be one of those theories that really fits. And the, the final theory is this police cover-up theory. And this theory takes on a lot of different forms. There's a lot of issues. This is small town policing in northern New Hampshire. There's a lot going on um, with the chief of the local police. There's stuff going on with a Sergeant Smith, the one that came across her vehicle. Now he ended up committing suicide. And of course, a lot of people said the suicide was part of a guilt of a cover-up or something that he did. Other people said the suicide was because he was constantly a suspect on mes message boards that people thought he had something to do with it. And so there's that whole angle of it to look at. There's also an officer who worked in the area named Bruce McKay. And Bruce McKay is a story in and of himself. He's this officer we would refer to them when I was in policing as super cops. There are guys that I think there's something he wrote like 300 tickets in a year in which his partners wrote something like 15 combined. So he's a guy that lives, breathes, everything, his authority, being a cop, whatever it might be. And he got in a lot of trouble for leaving the area that he was supposed to cover to go answer calls in other areas. Uh, he basically, he, he was a cop that belonged in a much busier area. And he he's a guy that couldn't be bored. So he was getting in trouble for leaving his jurisdiction, going into other jurisdictions to the point that officers in other jurisdictions were asking for different radio channels because he kept listening into their calls and showing up on them. And he had a real drive to get DWIs. And so there's some people that believe that he heard the call for the crash go out over the radio and he showed up during those seven minutes and took Mora into custody for the DWI, but knowing he would get in trouble because it was outside of his jurisdiction, he then brought her somewhere else. And this theory actually also is based on the fact that sometime after Mora's crash, he went unavailable at a hotel for a couple hours. Now it was later reported he did like to meet up with women while on shift and 
be involved in romantic relationships with, the, with those women at hotel rooms. And I mean, obviously, there's a, this guy has some clear professional issues going on, but it's something where he might have just been a perfect candidate for a guy that would arrest Mora and then somehow bring her to this hotel room and then something went wrong and then he covered up. That's what some people believe. And he actually was killed a few years after Mora's disappearance when a guy that he was harassing, a, a kid that he would constantly follow around and try to arrest, and he actually was told to stop following this kid and arresting him. This kid ended up eventually shooting and killing the officer during a traffic stop. So there's some people that put a lot of belief into this Officer McKay, and then of course there's other people that have gone well out of their way to show that uh, Bruce McKay could not have been involved, and that it's just one of the, again another one of those optics things. He's officer with some professional issues, working in the area that Mora goes missing, but he's not necessarily related. So, and this police cover-up theory is also based on the idea that this case. Even though it's 20 years old and Mora's father has done a Freedom of Information Act to try to get access to all the, the reports from the various agencies, that they won't give up the reports because they claim it's still an open investigation. And they said during a grand jury that there's a 75% chance that somebody might be arrested for this crime down the road. And so they don't want the information out there for the public to see. They want that holdback information that's in the reports. So it's frustrating because people can't really see what the police are doing. They don't appear to be making progress in any way. But, and they're st standing back saying, have faith, we might eventually arrest somebody. But at the same time, a lot of people are seeing it as a potential police cover-up. That's why they don't want to release the information. So sadly, as we end here, this is a case with more questions after 20 years than answers. The information provided above was based on research and may or may not be accurate. Several resources reported completely opposite information. So I know when this hits YouTube, when people listen to this that have their own theories, their own ideas about the case, they're going to hear some of the stuff I said and say, well, I know that's not true because of X, Y, and Z. I'm just going off what I could find in most of the sources in regards to if something was relevant or not. I did not go down any of the crazier rabbit holes that came across of potential theories or speculations or accusations against people because I don't think that's going to forward the case at all. I just wanted people aware that haven't ever heard the case before or again to me it's that seven minutes. Whatever happened during those seven minutes and that's somewhere out there in those police reports that hopefully will be released at some point. I think there's the information, and if anybody ever takes a fresh look at this, I think they'll find something in there, in those missing seven minutes, uh, uh, an eyewitness statement, something that holds the answer to this case. And I think everything else, all the other rabbit holes, the, the different theories that are based on hearsay or conjecture or speculation, again, it's just not worth going down those, those rabbit holes. And, and just for example, I spent a lot of time going down the rabbit hole because some of the articles state that not all the alcohol Mora bought was recovered in the vehicle, but other articles state specifically that all the alcohol was recovered. And this is a big deal because Bruce McKay, the officer I talked about, he made a phone call to a liquor store about specific liquor that Mora had purchased. And so some people drew the connection there saying, okay, well, he was trying to buy liquor to replace some liquor that was either lost or that he removed or something along those lines. But if you read some articles, they say all of the liquor that she purchased back in uh, at UMass was accounted for. Well, if that's the case, then it's less likely that there's any connection with the, the phone call Officer McKay did because it's not like he could come back and replace that alcohol at a later time. But if it wasn't all accounted for, then that really does change things because either you have to believe that she walked away from that vehicle with the bottles of alcohol or somebody you know, picked her up and took that alcohol and her away from the scene. But again, it's depending on which message board you read, depending on which person is offering you the evidence for their side and you don't know where that evidence is coming from, you can get down one of these rabbit holes very deep, very quick and you end up researching for a half hour trying to figure out stuff about this alcohol and ultimately you come to the conclusion that we have no idea whether this alcohol was actually recovered or not. 
and then you read another article that says the hit and run victim we talked about at UMass was drugged by a 4x4 vehicle, while another says he was clearly hit with the front end of a car, but the paint transfer doesn't match Morris Saturn, while another says there was no paint chips and Mora could still be a suspect. So again, absolutely this case is frustrating because everybody who has looked at it has their own theories and they they can put something out there that has no evidence to back it up, but you know, they try to sell it or they say they heard something or they have a source that told them something and that is a direct opposite to what somebody else has reported or said or supposedly offered evidence of. And this case is as interesting as it is frustrating to research and talk about, but I can't complain because I'm not Fred Murray or Julie, her sister. They are the true victims here and they just want answers. As I mentioned before, Fred has filed FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, requests for the case files, but they've been rejected because it's an open investigation. As far as I can tell from the research, there have been two grand juries that have looked at evidence in the case, and at the latest Freedom of Information Act hearing, the Attorney General said there's a 75% chance of criminal charges from this case, and someone else admitted they are keeping their eyes on a couple of people. So my guess is one day Mora will be found, and hopefully that will be what law enforcement needs to hold the people accountable responsible. But that is the case of Mora Murray. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes, and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook, and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.